Curious how many of you have tattoos squirmed a little in your seat just then. You're like, oh no, this is not going to be what the message is about today. Uh, Not exactly. I want to welcome you here again. My name is Dion and I'm one of the teaching pastors here. So glad to be together on a a Sunday like this. So thanks for coming. It warms my heart to be together and I I hope you find encouragement from this too. Um, We're in the series, Can I Ask That, where we are going to ask questions and uh, we're wrestling with some of the questions that we ask most. Today's question is really about why, why does God hate on some behaviors and not others? Why does God call some things sin and not others? Sometimes it makes sense to us, sometimes it doesn't, and maybe you've wondered about that. So today's your opportunity to uh, text in a question, 636-686-0140 for the second half of the message. Um, I'll answer as many of your questions as I can live. Uh, but before we begin, I, I want you to do me a favor today. Um, I, I wanna, some of you have heard me talk before about my nephew, Cullen. I have a picture up here of him. This is him right in the middle. Um, Cullen was, um, he was, when he was in my sister's womb, he was actually one of, uh, of, of twins, and uh, they suffered some sort of trauma, and his twin died in the womb, and Cullen was expected to die in the womb, but he didn't. He survived. But as he grew older, we found out that he suffered a traumatic brain injury in the womb, and so he has multiple disabilities. Um, Colin wasn't expected to, to live very long at all, and, um, and, and you know, life expectancy keeps inching up for him, but um, he wasn't certainly expected to live um, into adulthood, but this week, Colin just turned 18, which is, which is awesome. It's an incredible miracle, yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's an awesome kid. He, he, can't, he can't interact much. He can't talk. He can't walk. We don't know exactly what he's aware of, but here's what we do know. He loves Jesus. He loves music. He loves worship music. Um, every weekend, just about, he live streams back in Michigan. He live streams this, this uh, service. He loves St. John. He loves this church. Um, and he also loves the happy birthday song a lot. He really does love the happy birthday song. So would you indulge me for a minute? I wasn't able to make it back home for his big birthday celebration this week. Um, but would you indulge me for a moment in helping me sing happy birthday to Cullen on his 18th birthday? Would you do that with me? Just sing along with me. All right, Cully, this is for you. I hope you're watching. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Cullen. Happy birthday to you. God bless you, Cully. We love you. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. Uh, so um, he was not the only one to have a birthday this last week. My daughter Ellie also had a birthday this last week. She turned 13, which is kind of weird for my wife and I. We're much too young to have a teenager. I know that's what you were thinking. I just... Um, and yet we're, we've been thinking back over the last week about how different it is to be a parent now that our kids are getting a little bit older. We started thinking about what it was like to be parents of smaller children and all of the things that you just kind of forget about parenting smaller children, like mealtimes, for instance. Uh, mealtimes in our house have gotten really, really peaceful. They're really enjoyable. We like eating meals with our kids now. Um, and we remember that there was a time where that was not fun at all. Some of you there right now? Uh, Mealtimes can be the most exhausting times of your day. Um, you, maybe you remember what that was like when you, when you had young kids. And uh, so we started thinking back and, and how our kids would fight us at mealtime. In particular, our daughter Ellie, um, she, she was kind of a fighter. She still is, very strong-willed. Uh, and at mealtime, this is often, you know, the scene. She just wouldn't, she wouldn't eat what we wanted her to eat. And that got really frustrating. She's really strong-willed. Uh, one day, I remember she was in, early, in her early toddlerhood. And we were actually living with my in-laws. Uh, we were in between housing at the time, and so we were living there for a few months. 
And it was a day off work for me, and so I was home, and, um, and Ellie was not eating. I think it was breakfast. She was not eating. And I just had enough of this. I'm like, this strong-willed kid, I'm going to show her where her strong will comes from. I'm, I'm going to show her where she gets this. I can outwill her any day. And so, um, so I, I was sitting there with her. I was sitting there with her. I was trying to get her to, uh, to eat, and she was fighting me on it. And I was finally just so frustrated. I was like, Ellie, you are not going to leave this high chair until you finish this food. You can sit here all day. I don't care. You're going to sit here until you finish this food. And about that time, my mother-in-law walked into the kitchen. And she heard this, and she's just kind of shaking her head. And she said under her breath, she said, I don't understand what the big deal is. She'll eat when she's hungry. Which is the last thing a stressed out, insecure parent who's in a <laughs> battle of wills with their, with their daughter needs to hear. And so I'm not proud of it. I turned to my mother-in-law, and I said, listen here. This is my kid, and she needs to learn to do what I say. Really proud of that moment in my life. Um, yeah, not only was it disrespectful to my mother-in-law, it was, uh, it was, it was probably not the, the wisest parenting move. Um, and of course, Ellie proved that she has a stronger will than me. She still didn't eat, and I, I don't remember how it all went. The reason I bring that up is, isn't, isn't this how we often think of God? And the commands that he gives in particular, the things that God tells us to do or tells us not to do. Don't we imagine that God is sitting up in heaven saying, do this, don't do this, and don't ask why, because I said so is good enough for you. You just need to listen, right? I'm, I'm God, you're not, just do what I say. As if God is someone who loves to draw arbitrary lines in the sand to test us or to exert his power over us. And so this morning I want to ask you, when it comes to God, how do you see him? Do you see him as, as some cosmic legislator who's just making laws and some of them have reasons and some of them don't, but he does it because he can? Do you see him as some, some power-tripping dictatorial boss that maybe you've worked for over the years? Or do you see God as a loving father who ultimately, you know, is way better of a father than I am, uh, but who is ultimately looking out for the well-being, for the wholeness of his kids. See, depending on what your, your image is, your view of God, it all starts here. Today's message all starts here. Whatever your view is of God, that makes all the difference in how you hear him, how you hear his instruction, the instruction that may make sense to you or the instruction that may not make sense to you. It makes all the difference in the world. And so today, um, to, to just kind of look at this differently, maybe to look at God differently, and, and that's really my hope today, is that you look at God differently. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at the second known sin in all of human history. The second recorded sin, I should say. A lot of us know the first sin. It happened in a garden with a man and a woman, and there was a forbidden uh, piece of fruit and a serpent. The second recorded sin, at least, happened some years later, but not very far away, and it happened in a story between two brothers named Cain and Abel. So we're going to look at that story today. Genesis chapter 4, you can look along in your, your Bible here. Uh, it's good to crack open a Bible. It can be intimidating, but it really shouldn't be. So uh, you can get practice with that today. You can look at uh, the YouVersion Bible app. Um, and uh, you can also look along right here, Genesis 4. So Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, interestingly, God told them just a chapter before as, as they fell into sin, he promised Eve that one day there would be an offspring that would come from her who would, who would do away with the consequences of their sin, who would bring healing back to their relationship with God and their relationship with creation. So Eve assumes wrongly 
that this child that she's just given birth to, Cain, might be their savior, their, their rescuer. This might be the one that God has promised. She's, she's really wrong about that. We'll see in just a second. Uh, later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So Abel was, you know, shepherd. Uh, Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, some fruits and vegetables, grain, as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, but, but his, you know, was an offering of what he had, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel, the offering of fat portions, and of his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor, which finally proves that even God doesn't trust vegetarians. Um, so what's going on here? Uh, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So, so uh, yeah, for some strange reason, this is weird, right? Two brothers offer offerings. They offer what they have. One is, one's a farmer, so he offers vegetables and a fruit and grain. And the other one's a, a, a shepherd, and so he offers animal. And, and they're both offering what they have to God. And one of the offerings is accepted and one of them isn't. That seems really unfair, doesn't it? It seems really arbitrary. So it says that uh, Cain's face fell he had lost face in front of God and his face falls. He's, he's sad, he's, he's angry, he's downcast about that. Now, it sounds weird, but I think there are a couple of subtleties in the text which might help us with this. For starters, we don't know for sure whether God really didn't accept Cain's offering. It could be that um, the reason they made offerings is because they had a request to make of God. And um, it could be that Abel got what he asked for. He made the offering. He asked God for something. God gave him what he asked for. And so Abel felt favored. It could be that Cain made a sacrifice to God. He made a request of God and he didn't get what he asked for. And so therefore he felt like God didn't accept his offering. God didn't favor him. Now that makes a lot of sense to me if that's the case here. I don't know for sure because how many times in my life, how many times in your life have we asked God for something that we want or something we think we need. And when he fails to give it to us, we suddenly feel like we're out of favor. We feel like God doesn't love us, especially when we see that God's doing amazing things in someone else's life. We say, well, why does God favor them? Why does he love them? Why does he accept them and not me? It's, right? it's easy to do. So that could be the case between Cain and Abel. Or it could be that maybe Cain is right. Maybe God really didn't accept his offering. But in that case, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's got to be much more about the man than the offering. Look again at, at this, uh, this part of this verse. It says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Just look at the word order here. See, I think if, if God didn't really accept Cain's offering, it wasn't because something was wrong with the offering, it's because something was wrong with Cain. That God looked into his heart, God saw something in him that wasn't right, that was displeasing. And uh, in a minute, I think we're going to get insight into what that might have been. So um, let's, let's read along. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must not rule, or but you must rather rule over it. So right here, we've got this great framework. We, we almost get God defining for us what sin is. Again, this is the second recorded sin in history. And we get a picture of the things that God calls sin. They're the things that crouch at your door. Right? They're, they're, things, they're the things that lie in wait for you. 
The things that may look harm, harmless or maybe you don't even see them coming and yet they are waiting to ambush you. I, I don't know about you, but, but that feels pretty accurate to me about many of the, the sins, struggles that I've had in my life. I didn't necessarily see them coming. God says, um, it desires to have you. See, sin, are, those things that God calls sin, they're the things that, that threaten to own us. You can't just dabble in it. Those are the things that that threaten to master us. They they want to take control over us. But God says to Cain, but Cain, you must rule over it. You don't have to let these things get you. You don't have to be owned by it. You can fight it, Cain. You can choose to rule over this in this moment if you want to. See, God knows that Cain is is harboring something. He's about to do something. And if you know the story, you know how this turns out. Um, But if you don't know the story, I'll wreck it for you. He's, He's contemplating murder right now. He is so angry, he is so jealous, he feels so inferior to his brother that he is contemplating murder. And, uh, and God sees that and he says, he says, Cain. And I just love this because it shows us so much about the heart of God. God doesn't come to him and say, say Cain, I can't believe what you're thinking. That's, that's so wrong, that's sick, that's bad, Cain. If you do this, I'm going to be so furious with you. I can't believe you would even think about such a thing. God doesn't come to Cain and shame him. For this temptation, he doesn't. He doesn't accuse him. He doesn't power trip on him. Instead, I love what God does. God, God comes and he says, Cain, why are you angry? I, I mean, ask yourself, what's got you so angry? What's tearing you up inside? Why are you so sad? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. There, there is this enemy out there and it, it wants to master you. It wants to own you. It wants to control you. Cain, don't let yourself be mastered. I know you think that what you're about to do might, might help you feel better, but it's not true. See, I love that God comes to Cain, and he, and he comes so tenderly. He comes um, helping him try to understand what's going on in himself. He doesn't come accusing. He doesn't come power tripping. He doesn't come with a list of commandments. He comes to reason with his son, who's about to do something really, really detrimental to himself and to his brother. And here I think we begin to see that behind every command from God, there is a why. And our job is, is to do our best to try to understand the why. Please look to understand the why. See, again, so often we think God tells us to do stuff or not to do stuff for no reason in particular, but behind everything that God says, there is a why. Please, please, spend a little more time assuming that God is a loving father who who actually cares about you and wants you to have a whole full life and spend some time wrestling with the why. Now, now sometimes the why is easy to see, but sometimes the why is not so easy to see. It's really hard to see. I mean, in the case of murder, we're sitting here saying, well, of course, that's a bad idea. But what about the other things in our lives? The other things that God tells us to steer clear of or the things that God tells us to do that seem counterintuitive, that, that just seem kind of crazy. What about those things? Those things that aren't as obvious where you wrestle with the why and you can't exactly figure it out. And those other things, can you trust God that, that maybe he sees things that are lying in wait for you that you can't see yourself? Can you trust God's intentions for you? That he is not a God who is, is wanting to withhold any good thing from you. Anything that is truly good, good, God will not with, he does not want to withhold that from you. He's not trying to keep you away from the good stuff. Can you trust that? Can you believe that? 
See, I'm not going to lie. I, I think it's incredibly tough in my own life to, to heed God, to listen to God, to believe his instruction when it doesn't make sense to me, when I don't understand the why. But if you believe that God is your, is your wise and loving father who sees things that you don't, doesn't that make it at least a little bit easier to listen to and heed what he says? See, see here's what I'm discovering, and maybe you've discovered this too. That sin's power over us becomes so much stronger when we lose sight of God's heart for us. And so Cain, at this point, I, th- I think he's, he's quit believing that God cares about him. And uh, as God comes to him and, and pours out his heart and says, Cain, don't do this. I believe that Cain has already made up his mind about God and, and he, he realizes that, no, God just cares about Abel. God's just trying to protect Abel. Cain doesn't realize that God is trying to protect him from himself. And so Cain has his own plan. He's got his plan to deal with his embarrassment and his jealousy and his envy and his sense of injustice. And I believe that Cain actually has no clue how devastating his actions will be. We look at this and we say, well, this guy's about to commit murder. Please remember that no one has ever committed murder before. There aren't e-true Hollywood stories interviewing survivors, right? There aren't like crime shows where we get to see how catastrophic this is. This is an experiment that has never been done before. I believe that Cain actually thinks that this action is going to help. It's going to make his life more whole. It's going to make him feel better because no one has ever done it before. He's, you know, it's kind of like a firstborn child in a family, right? You got no bad examples to live, learn from, right? I was a secondborn. I watched my sister's mistakes and I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, Cain doesn't have that. And, and he's made up his mind about who God is, and he thinks God is holding out on him. God doesn't like him. God has it out for him. And so watch what Cain does. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Famous line there. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your own hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. Pretty severe punishment, isn't it? He's sent away from his home. He's sent away from all of that. He's, he's going to have a hard time doing his work. The ground is going to fight him along the way. And, you know, I look at this, and, and I'm not sure whether it's a punishment or whether it's God giving Cain what he really wanted. See, Cain had already made a decision. He made a decision that dealing with the complexities of a relationship with his brother, that it was too difficult. That he would rather kill his brother than to learn to manage the tensions of the relationship, then to learn to deal with his own issues. He, he, he would rather, uh, you know, do this just egregious thing against his brother uh, and be mastered by sin than to, to try to overcome these feelings that he was having inside of him. So I'm not sure whether this was punishment or whether this was God just giving Cain what he wanted, a guy who didn't want to have to deal with the complexities of relationships and people. Uh, Either way, Cain doesn't take this very well. And it's interesting to me that there is no remorse, there is no repentance for what he's done. There's only another cry of injustice. Again, because I I think he's, he's totally misread his father's intentions. So Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. 
Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me is going to kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As we bring this part of the message to a close and await your questions, again, you can text them in at any time. I just want to close with this. I think there's some learnings from this text about what, what makes sin, why God tells us to do things, and, and I hope that can help you think about God differently and think about the things that he says differently so we don't fall into the same trap as Cain. Uh, when you fail to take God seriously, here's what happens. First, you damage relationships. Right? Cain lost the relationship with his brother. In our... Um, failure to listen to God, we often hurt relationships in our life. But, but Cain also damaged another relationship. You saw that there. He damaged his relationship with God. He was driven away from the presence of God. And I, I believe a lot of that had to do with Cain and his own anger and his own hatred for God. I don't think God inflicted on, that on him alone. But um, we know what that's like when, when we do something in rebellion of someone, even God, and, and then later it's really hard to face that person again. See, when you fail to take God seriously, you damage relationships with other people, but also with God. Or secondly, you move away from wholeness. Um, I I believe the story is true. It's literal, but it's also powerfully symbolic, too. Uh, So so, um, I I don't believe, again, that Cain knew what his actions would cost him, but he literally has to move away from his home. He has to move east of Eden to the land of Nod. See, Eden, and specifically the garden that's in Eden, that that is the place where God's fullness dwelt most richly on all of the earth. That's a place of abundance, of wholeness. That that was that garden. It was perfect. It was the best existence possible. When Adam and Eve sinned, they had to move outside of the garden. They were not permitted to go back into the garden, but they're still in the proximity of Eden, and God is still there. Now, Now, Cain, with his action, is driven out of Eden, and he has to go to the land of Nod. He has to move east of Eden. Do you see, with every move he makes... Every, every move that's in defiance of God, what it does is it takes us away from wholeness, not closer to it. And I know that so many of us, we do things in life because we're trying to find fullness. We're trying to find abundance. We're, we're trying to satisfy some appetite within ourselves so that the gnawing feeling of, of, of those, uh, those desires will go away. But the reality is we move away from wholeness. We keep moving further and further away from Eden, not closer to it. Thirdly, uh, you risk becoming, uh, you risk being mastered, rather, when you fail to take God seriously. See, I, I think Cain thought his plan was foolproof. He was going to get rid of his oppressive brother and, you know, throw this monkey off his back. In the end, Cain ends up being less free, less autonomous, being exiled and distant. Man, w- when you fail to take God seriously, you risk being mastered. And I see this happen all the time, you know, in my own story, but in the stories of, of tons of people like you. Uh, people who start into something and it seems, it seems innocent, it seems manageable, and they end up being mastered. They end up doing things that, that are, are so dark or so unbelievable. They, never, they, they themselves never could believe that they're doing the things that they're doing. What has happened? Well, they've been mastered. When you fail to take God seriously, all this stuff happens, and you see the three U's here. This is what happens to you, but let me tell you the fourth thing. The fourth thing doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around God. See, when you fail to take God seriously, God doesn't stop being good. 
I love at the end of that narrative, God comes to Cain and, and Cain's saying, you know, I'm, I'm done. This is, I'm just, people are going to kill me, you know, my brother's family, whatever. They're, they're going to come avenge his death and, and this, I'm, I'm, I'm driven away from you. And God says, no. And he marks Cain and he puts a sign of protection on him. So you got to telling Cain, even though you've made choices in your life that have moved you further and further from wholeness, you keep moving further east of Eden, I'll still be there for you. I'm still going to mark you. I'm still going to be good to you. I will still be a good and loving God to you, even though you don't believe that's who I am. God doesn't stop being good, even when we fail to take him seriously. And that's the truth for all of us here today. People who have failed to take God seriously and find ourselves living east of Eden, and some of us are way east of Eden, and some of us are just a little bit east of Eden, but the truth is we are all east of Eden. We, we are outside of God's plan for, for wholeness and abundance, right? And yet God doesn't stop being good to us there. Even though there are complications, even though there's a, a lack of abundance, God still shows up and he still shows goodness. That's why Jesus came into the world. See, Eden is no longer a place. It's a person now. Jesus is the new Eden. He he is the person in whom God's fullness and his abundance dwells. So we can't get back to Eden. But instead, Eden comes to find us. Jesus came into the world to pursue us, to find us, to begin a relationship with us because through him, there is restoration, there is healing, there is fullness and abundance. And as we go deeper with Jesus... The deeper we go into the fullness that God has in mind for us, the more that God can do to begin to undo the effects of sin in our lives. Maybe not completely in this life, but the deeper we go with Jesus, the more of God's wholeness we can have. See, even though you're living east of Eden, God can still be good to you. But, But here's what I also know, that God would love to spare us from an endless flight, you know, an endless movement east of Eden in our lives. And that's why he speaks so many things to us. Some we understand, some we don't understand. The question is, will we trust who our God is? Will we trust him? And will we listen? I'm ready to take your questions. If uh, you have any, you can text them in 636-686-0140. Let's see what we have. Okay, uh, why does God command us not to kill, yet he asked Abraham to kill his son Isaac? So um, in this, we're going to a whole other Bible story, which I can't fully get into today. Um, but there is a time later on in Genesis where um, Abraham is, is a faithful servant of God, and God tests him to sacrifice his son, not, not just to kill him, but to make a sacrifice of his firstborn son. Um, of course, God doesn't make Abraham go through with this. This is a, a whole very bizarre uh, faith test that God puts before Abraham. And I think it's actually more than a test of Abraham's faithfulness because Abraham's ready to do it and God spares him and God provides a a ram in the thicket to sacrifice instead of his son. Um, I think it's more than just a test of Abraham's faithfulness. I think actually through that narrative, God is setting the stage. and, uh, And what he's saying is, what I would ask no one to do, not even you, Abraham, I will do. God says, you know, Abraham, I won't demand you to sacrifice your son, but, but, you know, thousands of years later, I will offer my son as a sacrifice for you. So I think in kind of a a reversal, God is showing us, you know, this unthinkable thing. Who would do that? And then in Jesus, God comes into the world and he does that. The only one that would ever do that, the only one he would ever ask to do that, you'd never ask that of any of us, he actually would do that himself. 
So um, I, I believe there's a, you know, there's, there is a test of Abraham's faithfulness, but I believe more than that, God's helping us understand, again, his heart and his willingness to do for us what he would never ask any of us to do for ourselves. Great question. Um, how do I discern if something is sin or something is just a cultural preference situation, like getting a tattoo, smoking, getting a divorce, eating unclean food? Uh, great, great question. And uh, I will say that discerning this stuff is not easy because in the Bible there are prohibitions against getting tattoos and there's prohibitions against eating unclean food and most of that stuff we don't observe anymore, right? And so we say, well, why, why would I still listen to that stuff and not that stuff? It's not easy to, uh, to determine the differences between these things. And uh, frankly, that's why some of us have to go to school, graduate school for a long time to begin to understand the nuances of the commands that God gives, what I will say about the Old Testament is that you have to remember God is not only giving moral instruction in the Old Testament that is universally true for all people, but in the Old Testament, God's actually doing something else. God is, for a time, establishing a nation who will be his chosen people, who will live in the center of the, you know, the ancient Near East, who will become this, this city on a hill, so to speak. Um, they will become this nation who lives for God. They live differently. They're a strong, powerful nation under God's rule. They will be so blessed that all nations will be blessed through them. Okay, so for a time, that's what God's focus was. He was doing his work through Israel, through the nation of Israel. And so a lot of these instructions are not necessarily moral instructions. They're, they're not about our wholeness, they're about how to build a good nation, their, their policy, their public policy, or their public health. See, I believe a lot of the stuff about unclean food, again, if you read, if you read through Leviticus uh, with his mindset of, uh, of just, you know, like public policy and public health, you start to realize that a lot of the foods that they're prohibited to eat are foods that are dangerous to eat if you don't know how to handle them well. In fact, they're still dangerous, and, you know, that's why we got labels on our food. It's a similar idea that, that these aren't moral injunctions. These are things that allow Israel to thrive and be safe and healthy and to prosper. Uh, same thing with getting a tattoo. These, I mean, this gets into sort of pagan religions around them, but people would literally mark themselves, almost brand themselves as being devotees of different gods. And God says, we, we don't do that. You know, like, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, identify yourself as a servant of another God. I don't even want you to do that for me, God says. I'm not one who, who thinks like those gods. I'm not looking for, you know, soldiers like that. Um, so there were prohibitions against getting a tattoo, largely because of the context in which they were living. So these things are contextual, but there are other things. Um, I'm not sure there's ever anything in the Bible about smoking, but uh, um, it's, it's, it's probably not a good thing to do. Um, divorce. See, see, some of these things have an ongoing moral effect um, in, our, in our lives. And so divorce clearly isn't, isn't easy. I mean, I don't know that there's a divorced person in this room who'd be like, get divorced. It's awesome, right? I mean, none of us would say that even if we had to go through a situation where, where divorce was the best option for us, it seemed like the only answer, we would never be like, oh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's easy. It's a cakewalk. Everyone should do it. Um, God is trying to spare us from that. I think further, we've also seen the effects of divorce on society. And, uh, and God's concern is not just for us as individuals. His, his concern is for the whole. You can't experience prosperity and wholeness while everything around you is going to, to the toilet, right? Right? You know this. It, you can be happy. You can have a great life. If your spouse isn't happy, then you're not happy, um, you know, if you, if you want to know how this works out, go, go back to the French Revolution when the, the nobles and Marie Antoinette, she was living high in the, in the palace and saying, let them eat cake and the people were starving. How long did her wholeness last? Right until they set off with her head, right? 
You can't have wholeness apart from everyone else. So God's real intention for wholeness is to bring wholeness to all of us. And so we see how divorce has a destabilizing, even though, again, you know, if you're divorced, this is not a word of judgment on you. You know this, that divorce has a destabilizing effect on families, on, on society, on, on our own kids. And so there, there's still this moral concern that God has that lingers. Again, this is why it's important to ask the why. And I know all of us can't do this. Um, some of us have studied this for a really long time. Uh, but if you look into the why of these things, you begin to understand what, what is lasting and what are uh, temporary prohibitions because of different reasons that God gives. But I, I agree, it's very confusing. Uh, there was a reference to Cain being marked so others would not kill him. Who is in Nod that could kill Cain if Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel were the only people on earth? Great question. This is a question that a lot of people have, have asked. Um, for, for me, the simplest answer to this, and I, I don't know that I have the full answer, but the simplest answer to me is, um, you know, Cain killed his brother. Um, it's reasonable to think that these men had families of their own at the time. I'm not going to talk today about how those families might have been formed because it grosses everyone out. Um, but we know that, that um, and this is, again, just a, in the way the Bible is written, that female children often aren't named or referred to directly in the Bible because the lineage, it's not because they didn't matter, it's because the lineage is traced through men. So men are often named because it's important for lineage reasons. For females, it's not the same. Um, but it, the, the likely thing is that there would be ancestors or other family members who would come later who would want to avenge their brother's unjust death. And, uh, and so they would, you know, eye for an eye, go after Cain um, as, a, as a way to avenge their brother's death. That's, that's the simplest answer. There are other people who have some other weird answers. I'm pretty simple when it comes to Genesis. I, I believe that uh, it happened the way it, the way it happened. So I would say these are other family members. Great question. Uh, it is so hard to abstain from some of the behaviors that God hates and the world loves, like greed, lust, etc., how do we walk in the spirit but stay connected to the world? <laughs> what a great question. Um, and to me, this is, this is the tension, right, of, of doing what we're doing. This sums up perfectly the tension of what it means to be on a life journey with Jesus. Jesus even prayed for us in his final um, hours, and, and he asked that we would be in the world, fully engaged, not taken out of the world, not, not you know, living in cloistered communities, not... Uh, living in walled-off fortresses, that we'd be fully engaged in the world, um, but that we would, we would not become like the world. We would not become of the world. We wouldn't blend in with the world. And, and frankly, this, this is the tension um, of what we're doing. I think a lot of this starts with continuing to understand God's character. And I have to do this all the time. I have to remind myself all the time. And that's why I love you know, worship songs, because they have a way of speaking to my heart about who God is. Um, they remind me of his character, that he really is a good and loving God. Because in my mind, I get it so confused sometimes, and I think God is trying to hold out on me, and he never is. And so I think for you, if, if you can remember who God is and what he wants for you, that he wants your wholeness, he wants your fullness, that he is not a God trying to deprive you of any good thing. Um, and so, so the stuff that the world loves, like greed and lust, those things look good to us. But if God says no, and I think if you study the scriptures, you'll find that he says no. That's kind of the second thing. Um, then you begin to understand that that may not be all that it seems to be. And here's what I also know as being a pastor. I get, I get an inside look into a lot of your lives. And I, I know that for a fact that these things, even though when you're watching someone who's living that life and you think they're, they're living and it's, it's great and it's awesome, it's never, it is never what it appears to be. 
Um, and there are times in, in my life where I'm shocked. Someone walks in my office for a, for a meeting and, and they, they tell me about pain and suffering and consequences in their life that I would never expect because they look like they were living it. So um, for us, I think it's trusting God's character to say, hey, it may look like that's really fun and that's abundant, but God says it's not. And I believe him that he is a God who loves me, who doesn't want to withhold anything good for me. That's still hard, but I think that's where it starts. And then I think acquainting yourself with God's word, understanding the why, and then, um, then doing what we're doing. You know, Chris talked about the one one fifteen. We developed that here at St. John as four things that you can do to keep you moving on the journey toward this. And so that means gathering here and giving God one day a week in worship and rest. That means spending 15 minutes a day, spending time daily with God in his presence. That means um, being someone to another person. That means Got the order switched. Uh, that means living to six and serving God by serving others. So um, I, I think as you do those practices, remembering who God is and immersing yourself and trusting his word, that's the best thing you can have. But realize that even when you're doing the best that you have, your best that you can, you're still going to make decisions that keep moving you east of Eden. But God is there through his son Jesus, bringing us life, bringing us wholeness. Uh, I love that song, Glorious Ruins. Because truly, even though my life may seem like it's an ash heap and I have, I have scorched, I've made a mess of it, I believe and I know and I've seen that God through Jesus can come and begin to rebuild the ruins of our life and make them into something truly amazing, something we would never ever imagine. To me, that's the heart of the gospel. We see it in Jesus as he dies and rises again. Um, but we see it also again and again for people who love and trust God that, that he can do these things in your life. And in fact, uh, today as we close off the message, we're going to, or close off the service rather, um, we're going to go um, have a time in a moment of, of communion where we come forward and where, where God comes and finds us exactly where we are. No matter how far east of Eden we're living, God comes and he finds us and, and he claims us and he marks us and, and he speaks words of restoration and healing and love over us. It's so incredibly powerful.